Good morning, folks. This morning, my sermon's on the, the Magi uh, from, from Matthew chapter 2. And I'd like just to read the story. You're probably familiar with it, uh, but uh, I think it's good to read the Word of God before we even start. And this is what we read in Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people, the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among all the rulers of Judah, from you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child lay. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, and of frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Very familiar story. Um, and a story uh, that uh, is not only in the Bible, but it's also uh, wrapped up in the myth that has grown uh, around it. There are lots of myths about uh, the, the birth, birth of Jesus. Some are very minor, like, they say he was born in a stable attached to an inn. Well, in Luke 2, the birth is described. It simply says there was no room in the guest chamber of the house. Um, uh, that room, guest chamber, means an upstairs room where they received guests and where they slept as well. Uh, so for Jesus, he was born in the downstairs room that was the sort of the, the workhouse part of, of the house. Uh, and there just happened to be a manger there. They might sometimes have kept cattle there as well. But one of the greatest myths surrounding the birth of Jesus is that the, the kings or the magi were there. They weren't. For in Matthew 2 and chapter 1, it says, after, the, after Jesus was born. After, that didn't mean five minutes after or ten minutes after or even a day after. It meant quite a long, long time afterwards. And also in, in Mark 2, Matthew 2 and 9, it says when they saw the child, and, and the word used there is, is pideon. A pideon refers to a weaned child, a toddling child, a newborn child. It's called a brephos. So Jesus here is a toddler. Hence, Herod later ordering the slaughter of all the children under the age of two years. He worked out that from seeing the star when he was born to now could be anything up to, I don't know, 15 months, 16 months, so let's, let's, let's say two years and we'll kill all, all the male ch children that, at that age. 
But also we don't know how many there were. It just says magi. Magi is plural of magos or magos. Um, there were a few of them. There could have been not three, but 33. We, we just don't know. But there was definitely more than one of them. They came. And when they came to him, um, uh, sorry, when, 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 when they came, the important thing is not, in a sense, where they came from or how many of them came. Or The, the important thing is, why had they come? That's the story of the Magi. Why had they come? It's their purpose that is focused on in Scripture, nothing else. So when we ask ourselves, who were, who were they? Uh, where had they come from? Well, they came from the East, which at the time, this time, uh, re was represented by what's known as the Parthian Kingdom. And they were arch enemies of Rome and they were forever fighting with each other. But the Parthian kingdom grew out of the old Persian and Babylonian and Median kingdoms that we read of in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel. The Magi were men who were seen to have profound wisdom and insight, great understanding as, as they saw it of astronomical signs uh, uh, and, and interpreting nat national natural offence or other. Um, today we perhaps call them astrologers or soothsayers or maybe even clairvoyants. Magic comes from the word magi, so you can see what they, they sort of, uh, the things that they sort of dabbled in. Um, but they, they weren't kings. The idea that they were probably comes from a, a misreading of the prophecy in, in Isaiah 60 in verse 3. Where it says, nations shall come to your light and kings literally rulers the word there, to the brightness of your dawn. Well, in a very real sense, the Magi were rulers, not kings. They served kings. Um, uh, and they were special advisors. They had great social political status and power back in Babylon, in that, that whole area. But why had they come on such a dangerous journey? It was a dangerous journey. It was like going through a war zone. It was full of robbers, etc., and also full of loads of Romans and Parthian sort of warriors that were constantly sort of battling across the borders of, of the nation. Why, why would they want to go through a war zone? Why would they want to go through a dangerous place that was full of bandits and goodness knows who else to go on a journey of several months, maybe six, seven, maybe more months to, to get there? Well, when they spoke to King Herod, the only concern they had was, where is the one born King of the Jews? For we saw his star arise back in the east. Now, we don't know what this star was. Everything is really speculation. Some have speculated that it could have been a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn which we know occurred round about 6 BC. So it sort of fits in with that. Um, but, but, but when that happened, it would have produced a massive star uh, with intense brilliance. So it would have stuck out in the sky as it, as it would when, when it happens today. And to the people of the East, Jupiter was known as the Star of Kings. So you can see the two being put together. Maybe it was Jupiter. We, we don't know. But the, the one problem with it is Jupiter does not move across the constellations. It's static. 
we see it in, in, in the same place. It, it follows its own cycle. Um, and it most certainly, uh, in a sense, wouldn't move and point out a single house in, in, in Bethlehem. So beyond all of this, it's speculation. But I think I can point out that the God who created the heavens could in actual fact cause a star to move and, and a star to shine over a place. Uh, and that means for me it, it's not a problem. It might be for you, look at it, study it, okay? But go to the Bible first. But what we can be sure of is that these men clearly had an expectation of a king's birth. And not only a king, but a king of the Jews. How come? How come these foreigners, they, these, these pagan folk from the East, how come they had an expectation of a king of the Jews being born? Well, we read in the Old Testament, uh, in many places, but in particular in Daniel, that he was taken as a young man into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. And in, his, in that time, he was raised up by Nebuchadnezzar to, to be a magos. He joined the Magi. And eventually, he became known as the magos of all Magi, the, the greatest of all the Magi. He was well known in Babylonian culture and society. He was a historic figure. So in a very real sense, Daniel's fame would have been widely known by the Magi. And in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, he prophesied concerning Israel that God's anointed one, the ruler, would one day come to the Jews and be anointed. Well, he would come to the Jews and he would be known as the anointed one. And that phrase to the Jews is none other than Messiah. Messiah would come. And Messiah, according to the Jews, would sit and reign on David's throne. More than that, Daniel prophesied in chapter 9 and verse 26 that this Messiah king would be cut off. And that is an Old Testament phrase, and it literally means to suffer judicial execution. He would be executed. He would be killed by the powers that be. And in doing so, he would make atonement for sin and bring in everlasting life and ultimately his kingdom that would fundamentally in the end rule the world. It would seem that they were at least familiar with this. They were familiar with this prophecy, but in some way clearly they identified themselves with Daniel's faith. Firstly, there was an identification in the gifts that they bought, but more importantly, why they bought them. For instance, the gifts they bought, they reflect Daniel's prophecy so well. For instance, they bought gold. Gold is a gift that was given to kings. And this child-born king of the Jews, in this sense, they would be celebrating his legitimate kingship and rule, as well as perhaps unwittingly providing the cash reserve that Joseph and Mary were going to need in just a little while as they go and spend several years in, in, in exile in, in, in Egypt to escape from Herod. But in the scriptures we read that, 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 that he 
I'm losing myself. <laughs> In the scriptures, we, we, we read that, that he, he, he came as king of the Jews. He came uh, as, as the one who would rule. Uh, and, and in the end, you know, the, 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 this, is, this was all wrapped up in, in his, ultimately his crucifixion and death. The king of the Jews. That's what uh, Pilate said. He put on the cross. Jesus, king of the Jews. So gold would seem to reflect that. The next thing is, modern translations just say the word incense, where they bought gifts of incense, but the word used is frankincense. Frankincense means white incense. And it, it was the, the most precious of all incense. It was very rare. It was very, very costly. And in, 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 the, in, the, in the Middle East and in Israel in particular, it was only ever used by a priest to anoint the altar of atonement. So that sense that that too would have been reflective of the prophecy that he is our great high priest who made atonement for our sins. They pay homage to God's anointed king sent to be God's priest who replaced every other priest who ever went before him. And he was the one who would come in and bring in everlasting righteousness. The third thing that comes in the gift is myrrh. Myrrh was used for the embalming of bodies. It was an anointing of the dead. And so in a very real sense, recognising that the king made, making atonement would have to die. Did they understand this fully? I don't know. I probably think not. But... There's no mention in here of the resurrection, and so, so that makes me sort of think maybe they, they didn't know. But you know, if you go to the Old Testament, you'd find many, many accounts where it's spoken of a Messiah coming and of him being killed and of him dying and his body not decaying and of him being raised. Now, if they only saw the star that saw in the star that he would die though, it's clear that they wanted to honour him for being prepared to come and die. That's the circumstances of their coming. But what was their object in coming? They said it to Herod. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. And that brings us right up to date with Christmas. What's Christmas? It focuses on the child. But we can't just see the child. We see the child through, uh, through the, the, the youth and the, the ministry and the death and the resurrection. We see the child through all of that. And remember the carols say to us, Oh, come all you faithful, come to Bethlehem, come and behold him. Come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Christmas is about that. That was the reason for their coming. We've come to worship him. That was at the heart of everything that they did. And so captivated are they, the Magi, with this birth, this fulfilled prophecy, that together, uh, that they together say, we, we, we've got to go and see this. We've got to go and mark this. We've got to take this journey. This is what motivated them. We've got to go, no matter what it costs us, to worship 
him. We've got to find him. We've got to worship God's Messiah King. They weren't totally bonkers, though. They made for the palace, assuming perhaps that, well, if there's been a royal birth, they're going to know. But also in the story note that having got directions, they weren't put off by being directed to a rural backwater. Neither were they daunted by the star's identification of a typical peasant's dwelling where Jesus was with Mary and, and Joseph. They weren't put off by the fact that they, high princely nobles, will be invited to go to a house that stank of animals uh, and, and sweat and all of the, the, the detritus of peasant life in those days. They weren't put off by it. In fact, we're told that when they saw the star pointing to that house, they were overjoyed. They, they magnified God. They said, wow, this is wonderful. He's there. You see, they didn't see the house. They didn't see the, they didn't smell the, the, the stench. They didn't, they didn't look at the poverty. They didn't look at the rough surroundings. All they were concerned was him. We want to come and worship him. You see, the object of their joy was not determined by the surroundings. They were neither put off nor, nor, nor encouraged by the, the surroundings. They were peripheral and to them unimportant. What was important was him. Who he was. Why he had come. What he would do. And we're told in Mark two, Matthew 2 and 10 that they were overjoyed. Literally, they rejoiced with an exceeding great happiness. They, 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 it was mega rejoicing. <clears throat> and when they, they came, these, noble, these nobles, kings, if you want to use that term, we're told that they came in as soon as they saw the child in the manger. Well, not in the manger, rather, saw the child. They bowed down and worshipped him. Now, that's such a lame translation of what's actually written here. And it potentially obscures what the statement we have come to worship him tells us about their purpose, about worship itself. The word for worship here is proscunio, and it means to fall flat on your face. And it's repeated in the way it says, worshipping, they worshipped him. Falling flat on their face, they fell flat on their face. <laughs> and you might say, oh, come off it, John. Are you saying that the only way that we can legitimately worship this, this Jesus is to, is to fall flat on the ground? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that all worship is like that. It's to adopt a certain position. In fact, there is no position uh, for, for worship. But it is saying that in their worship, what was in the heart was expressed by the outward action. They didn't bow down and think, oh, rats, we've got to do this because we've got to honour him. No, they freely bowed down. They freely went down. Why? Because it was in their heart. Their passion was to worship him. So what we have here and in so many other biblical passages is that heart and action and mind are all intertwined in genuine worship. And we say at Christmas, we've come to worship him. He is the centre. Now, worship is only genuine worship if what's inside is reflected outside. It's like when people say, you know, 
oh, I'm really happy that Jesus is my saviour. Now, I'll say to somebody who says that, well, perhaps you might go and tell your heart that and see what happens. But you see, repeatedly in Scripture, the, the, the notions of status, social decorum and temperament and disposition are frequently overridden in the context of worship and praise. And what we have here is a rejoicing with exceeding great joy, exploding into an unhindered and an expressive worship. That was the only way they felt they could genuinely display their heart was to fall flat on the face, to bow before him out of their hearts as they would to a mighty king or a conqueror. And when we speak like, speak like this, my mind immediately reflects on David when the ark was brought back, or brought into Jerusalem. Uh, and, and we're told that he, he, he got told off by his wife for this, but he, he danced near naked. Uh, and, uh, and she was embarrassed that the king would so humiliate himself. But he did it because his heart overflowed with joy. That his passion was that the ark would come, that God's presence would be in the midst of the people. And so we can say here this morning, and this is what I want to look, what I'm passionate to look at. Their worship was focused on the child, on the object, on the person. And when it was, it exploded in worship, in, in the way that they acted, because they see the object of their desire. They see the one they've been looking for, the fulfillment of biblical promise. You know, my friends, if falling in love can turn a tough guy into a pussycat in front of the one he loves, how much more seeing the one who loved us and gave himself for us? Personal preferences, my friends, and social decorum don't really have a place in true worship because true worship primarily focuses on and celebrates him. It's not about order, it's not about systems, it's not about a, a, a liturgy, it's not about any of those things. It's about celebrating him. True worship recounts, it shouts out, it rehearses, it unashamedly wonders at who he is and marvels at what he has done. It doesn't primarily, and especially not repeatedly, tell God why they've come. It doesn't focus on the benefits that God has given us. It focuses on the one who has poured out the benefits upon us. True worship bows in gratitude and exalts in praise. It tells the story. It re rehearses the glory of God. And in doing so, in the telling, the retelling, the magnifying, the, the, the making large who he is and what he has done, it gospels the world. It also builds up the saints. This is Christmas. This is, this is the story of, of the Magi for us, the meaning of it for us. This is Christmas. I want to tell you that... <laughs> 
great though it is at Christmas to blot out midwinter blues, even to forget about COVID, and to see family and friends and enjoy good food, all of which are good and I enjoy them. But nothing compares to knowing and focusing, first of all, on who Christmas is all about. It's about him. It's about him who has loved us and gave himself for us. It's about him who before the foundations of the earth purchased or desired, determined to purchase for himself a people who would enjoy him and know him and love him, a people for his price. And the greatest story of all perhaps of this is that these are pagans who are being invited into that story. They, 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 they weren't Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but there was something there and they were still invited to come. And that's our message at Christmas, isn't it? This story of Christmas is for everybody. Everybody, no matter how far they've come, how, how far away they are, of what age they are, what, what disposition they are, what status they are, they, they're all totally irrelevant. Christmas is about him who came, came to love us, came to save us, came to redeem us for himself. Can you say this morning, we have come to worship him. Your eyes wandering around this building or whatever building you might normally go to at worship, looking around and thinking, what a wonderful building. Is your eyes on the people around you and think, well, they're nice people, they're nice people. Is your eyes on the form of service or whatever? Oh yes, this, this suits my, my, my preferences, I like this. Well, my friends, I think if you are doing that, then you're a million miles away, even from the Magi. At least they had at the heart of what they were seeking. That desire to worship him, to worship Christ. So let me ask you this, wherever you are, as we celebrate together, even though we are mostly apart, can you say this morning, we have come, I have come, to worship him. Are you prepared to do that? And I'd like to encourage you, those of you at home, and those of you here in the building, I'd like to invite you to spend just a little time in giving thanks to one another and saying to one another, we have come to worship him. That's the story of Christmas. Oh, come. Oh, come all you faithful, let us worship him and give him all the glory. God bless you, my friends, and go well.